several months ago, I had the privilege of bringing a message to you from Isaiah 57 on the holiness of God. You may or may not remember the passage, but I know some of you do because a few of you recently talked to me about the impact it had on you. The theme of that message was that everything depends on one's conception of God. We discussed the fact that many today have an incorrect view on God's holiness, which was reflected in the way they view His Word, His commandments, the way they live their lives. When a person really understands and comes to grip with the unfiltered holiness of the one true God, the Sovereign One, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the holy and perfectly sinless, perfect, righteous God, there is one thing that always happens. They then see their need for grace and mercy. That is why in the Scripture, when anyone looked upon even the partial revealed glory of God, where did they end up? On the ground. Saying things like Isaiah did when he was given a vision of God and His glory. His words are recorded in Isaiah 6.5. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When a person accurately sees and understands the holiness of God, they will then see and understand their own depravity and their desperate need for His grace and His mercy. And that's what's going to be in view this morning. As we study a passage in 1 Timothy this morning that centers on the subject of the grace of God. Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 if you want to be turning there. First, some context as we begin. 1 Timothy is one of what is commonly called the pastoral letters. It was not written specifically to a church, but to a person. In this case, the person was Timothy, Paul's younger protege and co-worker in the faith. The beginning verses of chapter 1 tells that Paul's left Timothy in Ephesus with a mission. If you were here last Sunday evening, you heard a message from verses 3 through 11 on what that mission was. Timothy was told to stay in Ephesus and command the false teachers there to quit teaching things that were not in line with what Jesus and the apostles had been teaching. He was to refute the false doctrine and see to it that these false teachers quit spreading teaching that was contrary to what they had been taught. These teachers were told in verse 7 were wanting to be teachers of the law and that they were bringing in extra biblical teaching, myths and genealogies and other teachings most likely legalistic, works-oriented teaching that was perverting the gospel message. And Paul commands Timothy to confront these teachers, see to it that this false doctrine is exposed and extinguished. After Paul addresses the false teaching, he now, beginning in verse 12, is going to contrast this false teaching, this false gospel, to the true gospel. And he's going to do this by giving his own personal testimony of how his life has been transformed by the gospel, how he has personally experienced God's grace firsthand. So let's read our passage, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. As we read this passage, you may have noticed that the word grace is only used once in our text in verse 14. But it is the common theme that runs throughout the passage. It is contrary to everything the false teachers were teaching in Ephesus that he was instructing Timothy to refute. And it's still true today. If you go out on the streets of any city in the world and begin asking people if they believe in God, you'll find that many people do. Oh, there'll, there'll be a few that don't. But by far and away, according to the people that actually do this sort of thing, you'll find that most people do believe in God. It's probably not the God presented in the Bible, but a higher power or creator or some type. And they'll believe that there's a possibility of a God. The next revealing question is usually if there is a God and there is a heaven, then why do you think God will let you into his heaven? And they'll almost always say some things to the nature of, well, I'm a good person. I'm not really all that bad. I'm not a murderer. There's a lot of worse people than me. This in itself proves that most people in the world today do not have any clue about the holiness of God and the depravity of man. Because they go to church occasionally because they give some money, maybe to charity or do a few good deeds because they've been baptized or sprinkled or because of some other works-based deeds, they think they are good to go. People involved in all sorts of different religions, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Catholics, even many Protestant churches continue to teach some sort of works-based religious system where there is a list of do's and don'ts. And if you follow them, or at least tip the scales to the good side, your good outweighs your bad, then God will save you. And that was exactly what Paul was telling Timothy to refute in the earlier verses of chapter 1. Now in our text this morning, he refutes the false teaching and their works-based message by telling a personal example of his own conversion that shares the true gospel message, the one of grace. There's a lot I think we can learn from this passage, but what I want to focus on this morning are five things I think we can learn about grace from studying Paul's personal testimony about his conversion. The first thing we can learn from Paul's conversion is about the all-encompassing nature of grace. There are several aspects of grace, but it starts with salvation. That's the supreme nature of grace. Salvation is what it's all about. The whole passage is an example of God's grace in election. You're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is only by God's grace any of us are saved. In Paul's conversion story, he makes it clear he did not deserve salvation. He was keenly aware of God's grace in his own life. When he was recounting the events of his conversion in Acts 22, 14, and 15, 
after he was struck blind on the road to Damascus, Ananias said to him, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, Paul said, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul understood God's grace begins in salvation when he appoints, chooses, elects, whatever words you want to use, those who will be extended grace. But grace doesn't end there. Grace continues way beyond salvation. In verse 12 in our text, in 1 Timothy, Paul said, I thank God for giving me strength. Paul not only received electing grace, he experienced enabling grace. God gave him the strength to carry out all that he had for him. When you think of that, all Paul experienced in his life and his service to Christ, it's a little overwhelming. Think about it. Persecuted, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, ran out of town. But the Lord gave him and graced him with the strength to endure through all of that hardship. Paul is the one who wrote the famous words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is not the only one who experiences enabling strength. We all do. God empowers each of us to do what he calls us to do. We're not just the recipients of electing grace. We now live in the sphere of His grace, which is is enabling grace is just one of many. Another aspect of grace is found in what John MacArthur calls employing grace. Verse 12 says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Paul was graced by God to be used. It was by grace he was appointed and placed into service by God. It was only God's grace that he was able to be faithful. It wasn't that Paul was faithful so God used him. It was God's grace that even enabled him to be faithful. The highest pinnacle of grace is most definitely in salvation, but it extends way beyond. Paul understood that and thanks God for his grace and strengthened him, for helping him to be faithful, for his grace in making him a servant in the kingdom. Paul understood the all-encompassing nature of grace. And we need to be aware of that in our own lives as well. Think about how much we take for granted in this life. Our health, our family, our friends, modern conveniences at our fingertips, inside toilets, hot water, ease and abundance of readily available food, the luxury of our homes and cars. Think about even God's common grace in His creation that we all enjoy. Beautiful sunsets, ocean views, the ability to travel freely, the availability of work and provision. All of these things do not compare with the grace of salvation, but they are still gifts of grace. James says in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Many of you have done well for yourselves. When I look around the room, I see many that went to school, got an education, a good job, found a spouse, got married, had children. You found a good church here at Lakeside, accumulated a lot of stuff, 
Now, some of you are even enjoying retirement. Now, think about the grace of God that I just skimmed over in that brief statement. You went to school, which means you were born into a family and a country that made that available. You had the financial means and the freedom to do it. You got a job. There were jobs available. You were free to pursue your dreams. You had the health and the IQ to do what you wanted. You got married. For some of us, that was a lot of grace. God provided the perfect spouse for us. Many of you then went on to have kids. Who made the miracle of children possible? Not everyone is so blessed. We work, which in itself is a blessing of grace. We have more than just the necessities. Many of us enjoy vacations and toys and many of our jobs provide health insurance and retirement benefits. We have friends and church family and I could go on and on and on all day. There's nothing we have that God didn't grace us with. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I think in America there is a culture of independence that sometimes when we work hard and go after life with purpose and motivation that we can think that we have somehow accomplished things because of our own hard effort. But let's be honest about that. We may have worked hard, but who gave us the health and energy and the ability? Who gave us the mind and the brain power? Who gave us even the motivation and the desire? Who gave you the environment that was conducive to success? Any number of things could have gone differently that would have changed the circumstances of your life in a millisecond. We experience grace upon grace upon grace every day, every moment of our lives. When we think of grace, we might think first of salvation, and rightly so. But the grace of God is all-encompassing. It is so much more than just salvation. Everything that is good is a gift of grace. And even the things that we might consider bad, Scripture says God in His grace uses them to mature us and to mold us and to conform us into His image. That's grace as well. God's grace is all-encompassing. The second thing we can learn from Paul's conversion is found in verse 13 and 14, and that's the power of grace. It says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. One of the most wonderful things about God's grace is the power of transformation. And the transformation of the Apostle Paul is one of the most dramatic ones you'll ever hear about. He gives a partial testimony here that shares what he was like before he came to know Christ. He said, I was a blasphemer. A blasphemer is one who slanders God, who speaks evil of Him. He says, I was a persecutor of believers. He didn't just not like believers. He went after them. He made it his personal mission to go house to house searching for Christians and having them arrested. He says himself he was a violent aggressor. He had no normal concern for human kindness. He not only mistreated them, he was violent and aggressively mistreated them. He was one of those individuals you would say to yourself that there was no hope for him. 
He was too far gone. His sin was too great. And yet, that shows another nature of the power of grace. Nothing, no one, is too hard for God. God's grace is sufficient and abundant and is powerful enough to save anyone God chooses to save. Some might only need a gentle push, an encouraging, enlightening word, and others like Paul might need a jolt of lightning. You remember that's pretty much what happened to the Apostle Paul. I read about it earlier in Acts 9. God had to get Paul's attention in a dramatic way. And when necessary, he does that. He does whatever it takes to bring light to those he calls. And he has the power to accomplish it. His grace is all-powerful. When someone tells you that they are too far gone, that you don't know my life, my sin, we know and we can share with them the power of God's grace. There are countless stories of people that you would not have expected to be saved. I thought about C.S. Lewis. He was an educated Oxford professor who was a staunch atheist who called out in that darkness. God called out to him and he was transformed by God into one of the most well-known Christian men and writers in recent history. I read recently about a several dramatic conversion. One was a man named David Reed who was a former Jehovah Witness who found truth and forgiveness in Jesus. I read of a former Mormon, James Walker, who broke free of that false religion and found the grace of God. I read of a former New York street ganger named Nicky Cruz who was miraculously transformed by Jesus. I love, we all love dramatic conversion stories, don't we? But let's face it, most conversions are not so dramatic. Sometimes I have heard people say they wish they had a dramatic testimony, that they're Testimony is not all that interesting. Maybe they were born into a Christian family and they came to know Christ as a child and they never departed. Praise God! What a testimony! Thank God you never wasted years of your life in rebellion, running from God and serving the creature instead of the Creator. But let's face it, when viewed correctly, every conversion is dramatic. When you are dead in your sins and God makes you alive, when He takes you from death to life, that is dramatic. What difference does it make how far dead you were? I do not have a dramatic conversion story that makes heads turns, but it made my life turn. My parents took me to church every Sunday when I was a child. I mean every Sunday. They did their part. The church I went to gave out these little perfect attendance pins that hung down your suit coat. I was in church every Sunday and I had many years of perfect attendance. I was in, in church every Sunday. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. But over time, in my early 20s, when God revealed Himself to me clearly in a real way, my life began to change. It was not sudden or dramatic by some people's standards, but over time I went from being a self-seeking, self-centered, materialistic, earthly-minded young man to one who would become a young man who would strive to please the Lord, lead my family, one who would grew a desire to serve, who thought about eternity and heavenly treasures. The trajectory of my entire life changed as God transformed my thinking, my desires, my goals in life. That may not make a great story, but it was a dramatic shift in my life. God's grace was transformative and powerful to me. And the truth is that every person who God breathes spiritual life into 
swims in a sea of grace. We should marvel and praise God for every person He saves, whether they be 8 years old, 18, or 80. Each one is a real miracle. Paul goes on to say that he was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance. As great as Paul's sin was, he was shown mercy. He said in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The power of grace was greater than all Paul's sin. And it was, as he stated, because he acted in ignorance that God showed him mercy. Paul was what we would call blind. He had not heard and understood the gospel and turned away in rebellion. That's why we can continue to pray for all unbelievers. We can pray like Jesus did as he prayed for those who crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The grace of God is powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner when and if they are repentant. And when God confronted Paul with the truth, he believed and he followed him. Another aspect of the power of the grace of God is its abundance and sufficiency. I alluded to it earlier. I get upset when people are content to stay in bondage to stubborn and sinful habits. I run across this a lot in the counseling ministry. Jesus came to see us transformed. And He gives us the power by His grace to do it. Not everyone experiences dramatic, instantaneous transformation. Some are blessed with it. I've heard stories where God took an alcoholic and removed their desire completely. Where a person comes to Christ and their obsession with pornography is immediately taken away from them. But let's be honest, that doesn't seem to be the norm. Many, if not most of the time, it takes hard work, discipline, and endurance to continue to walk down the road of transformation and sanctification. But it's God's will. We know it is. And He does, by His grace, give us the power to do it. So it's my prayer that some of you might be challenged this morning by being reminded of God's wonderful grace that He desires and gives you what you need to change. Do you have an addiction that's silently destroying you? Do you have hidden sin in your life that nobody but God knows about? Or are your sins more subtle are you a harsh person? Do you have a critical spirit? Are you a gossip? Are you stingy? Do you waste hours of your life watching TV or surfing the internet? Do you overeat? Is anger a problem? Maybe it's stress and anxiety, laziness or ingratitude, a fear of interacting with people. Whatever it is, by God's grace, you have the ability to be transformed. God is a God of transformation and of power. Nothing is too hard for God. If He can change the Apostle Paul from a blasphemous, violent persecutor of Christians into one of the greatest men of faith the world has ever known, He can change you and me no matter what the need for change might be. Whether it be a new spirit, a new life, a new beginning in Christ, or to change a sinful habit. So stop saying that's just the way I am and take God up on His promise to help you become more like His Son through the power of His grace. God's grace is all-encompassing. It's all-powerful. And thirdly, we've, we learn from Paul's conversion about the purpose of grace. Verse 15, 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul leads into this important point by saying this is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's a phrase that he used frequently in the pastoral epistles, and it's the statement following this phrase were always well recognized in key doctrinal statements. In this statement, in only eight Greek words, he summed up the gospel. He specifically uses the name Christ Jesus to reference the Lord. Christ implying the anointed king who came to redeem. Jesus, the God-man who came into the world. Not that he existed, not that he was created, but that he existed prior and he came into the world. Why? What was the purpose? To save sinners. This acknowledges the existence of lost, blind, hostile humanity who in their current state were doomed to destruction because of their unbelief. He came for a purpose and that purpose is clear, to save sinners. It's funny. Actually, it's not funny. It's sad. You could go to many churches today and sit in a pew week after week after week and walk away with the wrong idea of why Jesus came. Many think Jesus came so that we could all be happy. That He could fix their marriages. That He would give them life of abundance and prosperity. He could heal their broken bodies, mend their broken hearts, take away their loneliness. And He might very well do all those things. But first and foremost, God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. All of us fit into that description. Before Christ, we were all doomed to judgment and sentenced to hell. Sometimes I think we forget what we were saved from. We should never forget that. We were saved from judgment, the punishment, the wrath of God that is to be poured out against all sin and sinners who have rebelled against Him. Romans 1.18 says it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Later in chapter 2, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but only obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The Bible makes it clear that hell is a real place reserved for all the wicked, which translates as unbelievers. Scripture describes it as eternal fire. Listen to just a few verses that describe what is awaiting for those who die in their sins. Matthew 3.12 his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Luke 16, 23 and 24. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Revelations 20, 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No wonder so many false teachers don't talk or preach on these verses. This is not what people want to hear, is it? We need to remember what we were saved from. Paul understood what he was saved from. He understood who he was in relation to a holy God and he understood he was a sinner and what that meant. He even calls himself the foremost, the chief. If a person today shared their story the way Paul did, 
some in the church might try to correct his self-image, restore his self-esteem. But Paul had an accurate self-image. He rightly understood who he was before Christ saved him, and that gave him an accurate understanding of the grace of God. We learn from Paul's conversion about the all-encompassing nature of grace, the power of grace, the purpose of grace. And fourthly, we learn that God had each of us in view. I have to admit, this was something new to me. I hadn't really given it much thought before that in Paul's conversion, God has every other future believer in mind. Listen to verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul's testimony was to be an example for all of us. Paul's example teaches us that nothing is too hard for God, that God has a lot of patience. Paul was living proof that God can and does save even the worst of sinners. That should give us great hope. I tried to think of how to relate Paul's conversion in today's terms. Paul was not an ordinary person going about their daily life with no thought about God. He was an opponent to Christianity. Fully devoted to his religious system to the point that he was hostile and actively persecuting Christians. In some ways, it might be like the Ayatollah Khomeini, the Muslim leader of Iran, becoming a Christian and then devoting himself to becoming a missionary to the rest of the world. Not likely, is it? But that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. No one is beyond God's ability to save. No matter what you have done, Jesus will forgive you if you turn to Him in faith and repentance. But it also means that there is hope for your loved ones. Do you have a child that seems beyond the point of coming back? A spouse that seems so blind that they'll never see? A friend or a loved one that no matter what you say just doesn't get it? Do not lose heart. Continue to pray. There didn't seem to be any hope for Paul either. When you realistically and logically look at where Paul was in life, you would not have given him very good odds. What do you think the odds would have been? 1%? 2%? We would have put really low odds on it that he would come to Christ. Who would ever thought that Saul of Tarsus would become a believer in Jesus? He was the least likely candidate. But nothing is impossible for God. And no one is out of his reach. His conversion was instant and immediate. Paul's conversion was a divine, sovereign work of grace. Jesus took over on that Damascus road and Paul was never the same. That should give us great hope. God came to save sinners. His grace is all-powerful, more than abundant, more than sufficient. Paul's life is a reminder to all of us that there's always hope in this amazing grace of God. So do not give up hope for your loved one, your child, your grandchild, your spouse, your neighbor, your co-worker. No matter how far away it seems, no matter how unlikely, when the power of God's grace focuses on someone, when God calls, everything can and will change instantly. Lastly, we can learn from Paul's conversion to praise God. He says in verse 17, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Paul is an older man now. He's looking back. He's reflecting upon his life since that experience many years ago on the road to Damascus. From some people's perspective, that experience brought a lot of pain and sorrow into his life. A heavy load. Weighed him down with a lot of care. And even now, close to martyrdom. But as he reflects on his life, just the opposite is going on in his mind. He turns to God and breaks out in a song of praise. How can that be? Because Paul understands grace. He understands who God is and who man is and he understands how wide the chasm is between man and God and he understands the grace that intervened. Even the words he used in his doxology reflect that. He said to the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible God. He could have used a lot of attributes of God, but he chose these that theologians call the incommunicable attributes, the ones that only belong to God. King of the ages, invisible, the only God. He's referring to the truth that God is eternal, self-existent, infinite. Only God is those things. And yet Paul recognizes that that type of God, that holy, righteous creator and rule of the world, is yet loving and gracious to save, to transform, to make us fit for eternity. Paul understood this better than most. No wonder he broke out in praise. That is what should happen each time we are reminded about God's grace in our own lives. When you spend even a moment thinking accurately about God and honestly about yourself and how God's grace and mercy was extended to you, it should overwhelm you. And we should have no other response than praise and worship. What amazing grace He has shown to me. So in conclusion, and I want to ask the question, how is this message of Paul's conversion spoken to you? Are you in need of God's grace for salvation? Is He calling you this morning? Maybe you are not a persecutor, but maybe you've never really submitted to His Lordship. Maybe you have not given up your own agenda. That you are the captain of your own ship. And He's calling you to hand over the reins to Him this morning. Maybe not in such a dramatic way as He did Paul, but speaking to you nonetheless. Maybe He's speaking to you to continue allowing the work of grace to more fully transform you. To take hold of the power of grace to change more into His likeness. You know what that need for change is. Maybe you've been reminded of the hope we all can have for our loved ones who need this life-changing grace and mercy. And Paul's conversion gives us the fresh perspective and reminder that there's still hope that nothing's too hard for God. Or maybe you've been reminded of the blessing of grace that we've received from God individually and personally and we need to praise and worship Him more. We should never take this grace for granted. However it speaks to you this morning, may it move you to action. May you leave this place changed, more grateful for His amazing grace. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Father, You are a holy God. And we are a sinful people. We desperately need Your grace and Your mercy. 
And what is so amazing is that you freely give it. Thank you for all aspects of your grace, your saving grace, your enabling grace, your employing grace, your common grace. We live every day in a sea of your grace. Your grace overwhelms us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has never experienced your forgiving grace, I pray this will be the day. Help us all to never underestimate the power of your grace. May we recall what you did in Paul's life and be encouraged. May we recall what you did in each of our own lives and be encouraged. May this remembrance cause us to break out in worship to the author and finisher of our faith. You alone are worthy of all praise and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.